Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 130 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest this week is Vince Houghton. Vince is a veteran of the U.S. Army and served in the Balkans. He went on to receive a master's degree and Ph.D. in diplomatic and military history from the University of Maryland. He spent more than six years as the historian and curator for the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and is now the director of the National Cryptologic Museum located on the National Security Agency campus at Fort Meade, Maryland. I invited Vince onto the podcast to discuss his book, Nuking the Moon, and other intelligence schemes and military plots left on the drawing board, first published in 2019. As you can already surmise from that title, it's a close look at some of the most incredible plans never put into action, spanning the 20th century and beyond. But before we dive into this story, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who is also supporting me on Patreon, including Elizabeth V and Stormy L. Your monthly contributions there help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. Vince, thank you for joining me today. Hey, no problem. Guys, to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Your name and your work have come up a bunch of times in my research over the past few years. So I'm very glad to finally get the chance to speak with you. Yeah. Happy to be here. Happy to, happy to have my name come up in people's research too. That's always <laughs> nice. Good. Yeah, I believe it. So you're the director of the National Cryptologic Museum. Like now, what was it like to take over and move from the spy museum? Well, I, I took over in the middle of COVID. So it was weird mm. to say the least. Yeah, I was I was taking over a museum that wasn't open. But that, that kind of really gave us an opportunity to do something that no museum ever gets a chance to do. And that's redo everything. Unless you shut down on purpose, most museums can't do a top to bottom reimagining during normal operating hours. Just you have to take care of the visitors. You have to kind of keep the museum running. But because we didn't have to do that, we could sit back with new leadership and say, all right, what have we been doing right? What can we do better? What can we change? And that was fun. I mean, it was fun to kind of come in and, and reimagine this place really for the first time in, in 30 years. Uh, this museum, a lot of people don't know we're here, but the museum's been around for 30 years, but it hasn't really changed all that much until very recently. Okay. I see. Was it always open to the public or is that like a new development? Yeah. Well, it, for the first six months of its existence, it wasn't. So it opened as a museum for the workforce at NSA in spring of 1993. And then after about six months, the director of NSA said, you know what, let's just make this open to everybody. And so, yeah, we became fully public in December of 1993. So we just celebrated our 30th birthday open to the public. And we're still, to this day, the only intelligence community museum that is completely open to the public, which, you know, wonderfully, it's NSA's museum. It's the most secretive of agencies has the only museum <laughs> that the public can just wander into anytime they want. 
Right, right, absolutely. So has has it been meeting your expectations so far? Are you getting more of the public coming in now after the grand reopening? Yeah, I mean, we, the trouble we have is that we're we're not on the National Mall, right? I mean, if we were if we were next to oh, the air, yeah. if we were next to the Air and Space Museum, we'd have no problem attracting people. You got to make a point to come out here. We're we're basically halfway between Baltimore and Washington, and so our, our the biggest thing that stands in the way of us having you know, double, triple, quadruple the attendance is people don't know who we are. Even some people who work across the street at NSA are like, we have a museum. And, and so we work very hard to get, you know, we're, we're again, we're the opposite of the agency. We work very hard to get our names out into the public, into media and other things. And uh, what's wonderful is our NSA PAO people, they don't know what to do with us because, you know, their job is to make sure there aren't any bad stories about NSA, like any PAO and any organization. <laughs> mm-hmm. My job is to get the museum splashed across the front page of the New York Times. And so they're like, wait, what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm, trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to get people to learn we're here, right? And, and so that's always an issue. Um, you know, unlike the Spy Museum, and the Spy Museum, right in the middle of downtown D.C., it has a pretty significant advertising budget. Everybody knows everything about it. We're in a different universe when it, when it comes to that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I understand. But that also makes it more intriguing, especially for people like my listeners, I think, is getting to see something that a lot of people are not necessarily aware of. I think it would absolutely be worth the detour if you're in the D.C. area already. And it's right off of I-95, if I recall correctly. So it's pretty easy to find once you're in that area as well. I mean, if you if you ignore traffic, which, you know, if you're coming in the middle of the day, it's it's we're 20 minutes from D.C. We're, we're not oh, wow. we're not far. Well, in rush hour, we're four hours from DC. I'm joking. We're not that bad, but <laughs> right, you right. know, if you come up at eleven in the morning, you know, we're, it's a twenty minute drive. It's really not that difficult. Okay, fantastic. So, with this new renovation, the recent renovation, anyway, do you have any particular exhibit that stands out to you as like an absolute must see for the public? Well, this will come as no surprise to anyone who heard you mention the title of my book. But we we actually were able to work with the nuclear command and control operation here at. NSA. And, and most people don't know that NSA actually develops the nuclear codes. And it makes sense when you think about it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. We're, we're the code and cipher you know, agency, and we're the ones that create that stuff. But we were able to de- get declassified and acquire the nuclear command and control system that spanned the 1980s until very recently. So essentially on display at the National Cryptologic Museum are the servers that created all of the nuclear codes for the United States for those about three and a half decades, plus the machines that created the biscuits. Some might be able to know what I'm talking about there. Essentially, the little cards that were carried inside ballistic missile submarines, bombers, ICBM silos that were, you've seen them in the movies where they, they pull it out of the safe and they break open the card and there's a code yeah, inside. Yeah. All of those were manufactured by NSA, at NSA. And we have the machines that did that on display up until very, very recently. And I'm being coy about how recently, but we're talking <laughs> only a couple of years ago. So they're, they're 20 teens, late 20 teens is when they were finally retired. And so those hadn't been seen by anyone outside of the people who worked on them until about a year before we opened. So that was the first time even people like me with top secret clearance got a chance to look at them. And then when we opened last October, that's 2022, the public saw them for the first time ever. And so they're, they're pretty extraordinary. I mean, they, they are the things that I, I argue when I, when I wrote the label that are the, the potentially the most important artifact 
on display, not only at the museum, but at any museum. You know, and that's my, my bias showing. But if you think about it, you know, logically, if you think about it objectively, these these were the mach machines and servers that created the nuclear codes. I, I'm not sure, you know, as great as Air and Space and, and American History Smithsonian's are, th that's pretty monumental. And we were fortunate to get those declassified just in time for our reopening. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to imagine a more significant target for our adversaries during that time period as well than the devices creating the nuclear code. So it's amazing to think that those are on display now when they were such a closely guarded secret and such a valuable target not that long ago, really. So that's that's wonderful, honestly. Well, I mean, I think that shows, you know, one of the advantages that we have here is we're basically a technology museum, right? A lot of the stuff we have on display is technology. And because technology moves so quickly, things become obsolete much faster than they had in the past. And so we can have things on display from just a couple of years ago. Like we have, okay. we have all of Barack Obama's cell phones and Blackberries on display here. Oh, wow. All the ones, if you remember the story of he wanted to keep his Blackberry and it wasn't very secure. So NSA is like, give it to us. We took it and we juiced it up and we gave it back. And all of those are on display here. And you think, very Jesus, there are cell phones and, and smartphones and Blackberries from the Obama presidency, which just ended in 2017. But we're now seven generations past that with smart technology. Yeah. And yeah, so we yeah. can put those on display. Hmm. Very cool. Okay. Yeah, that's exciting stuff for sure. So Vince, we were going to talk about your book. And since you mentioned the nuclear codes already, and the book is titled Nuking the Moon, I wanted to ask you what inspired you to write a book like this about things that did not occur, which is a very unusual way of looking at history, I think. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, it was a target-rich environment. Most historians write about stuff that actually happens, right? So this is an opportunity for a different look at history. And, and a lot of it was focused on trying to tell stories that I had heard over the years. I mean, historians are like anybody else, right? When we get together with our colleagues and our peers, we tell, we, we talk shop, right? We talk the job. And a lot of people are like, oh, I've been doing research and I'm running this story. It really didn't go anywhere. But it's kind of a fun story. And so we tell it to each other. And over the years, I had picked up on a dozen or two of these of just conversationally things that somebody had run into in an archive or if I had run into in an archive and then chased it down as it was an incredible story, thinking we had our next bestseller on our hands. And then it fizzled out, right? It never really had an ending of any kind of consequence. And I'm like, you know what? This isn't just for fun anymore. This is kind of understanding the mentality of the people who were planning these things at the time. Because a lot of these projects, even though they didn't happen, right, even though these projects didn't go to fruition, we spent a lot of resources on them, whether it was time, manpower, money, uh, things that we could have been using on other things that were much more successful in the end. Why did we think that we should do these things? And so I picked... Two time periods, and the book is almost exclusively the two time periods of World War II and the Cold War. And it's because these are times when we truly felt desperate, when we were willing to entertain ideas that we wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, there's a natural sequel to this book during the War on Terror, right? A time when we kind of felt desperate to do anything and try anything. But World War II and the Cold War are really great examples because of, you know, how close we could have come in many cases to complete annihilation, whether at the hands of the Nazis or the Soviets. And, and, and so we, we, we made decisions we probably wouldn't have otherwise. And so to me, that, that, that was just a fun way of putting these stories together that hadn't been told other places and, and writing them in such a way that can maybe inspire people to kind of study history in different ways. 
I'm a bit of a heretic when it comes to history because most historians look back at the past and and don't, and I don't want to kind of paint a too broad a brush on this, but a lot of historians, let's call it that way, don't push out their the bias of their hindsight. They apply what they know today to evaluate outcomes, right? They're like, well, this is a bad idea because of look what happened. And, you know, the, the, you know they, they're a bit judgy when it comes to the evaluation of historical events. And I am an absolute believer in that is bad history. I think that if we allow ourselves to be swayed by outcome, and the outcome in this case would be a project that actually happens, then we can't truly understand what people were thinking, what people were feeling, why they made the decisions that they made. And to me, that's how we learn from history. So this is a natural kind of route for me to go and say, you know, I don't really care about the outcome. I don't care if it happened or it didn't happen. I really want to understand the process. I want to understand the process of how people thought, how people were feeling, and track it that way. Hmm. Okay, that makes a huge amount of sense. And I had honestly not considered that before because I guess I suffer from the same bias because I'm thinking, you know, some of these plans are so ridiculous and maybe they're only ridiculous because they didn't work because some pretty ridiculous things have happened in the past, certainly. So this is a great way to get insight into the the mindset when you look at everything else that was being considered and taken into account at the time. It's fascinating. Well, I mean, think about it this way. This is what I like to say is, is we look at Eisenhower today as this military genius, right? He gets elected by two landslides, the president, because of his military prowess in World War II. And what would have happened if there was a freak storm that popped up during the Normandy invasion? on June 6, 1944, and D-Day fails. Eisenhower is no longer the military genius, but has nothing to do with his plan. It has nothing to do with his capabilities as a military commander or a planner or a strategist. It was just a freak accident. But all of history would have changed. Does that make his plan any different when we evaluate it? If we just wanted to evaluate the plan, well, we it's hard to not look at it and say, yes, it liberated Europe and it did all this wonderful stuff, but that's just because it worked. It doesn't necessarily mean it was good. What if it fails? Is it still good? Can we evaluate it that way? It's, it, there's so much Monday morning quarterbacking going on in history. When you look at some of decisions that were made and you say, you know what, this, this worked great. So this guy's a genius. It's like, it worked great because like 20 things broke the right way. <laughs> but if one of those things hadn't broken exactly the way that it did, it, it wouldn't have worked. And you would not think this guy's a genius. You know, genius is not dependent on blind luck. Well, it shouldn't be, right? You know, or the other way around, right? This was a great idea, but, you know, a dust storm blew up. And so helicopters crashed into each other. I mean, you know, one of, one of my parents' close friends was the J-2 on Operation Desert One, which was the attempted rescue of the hostages in Iran. Uh, and I've had a lot of conversations with him about this idea of, you know, the plan was great. And I'm like, well, no one thinks the plan is great. I think it was a complete screw up. He's like, well, dust storms happen and you can't predict them. And all of a sudden you have no visibility and helicopters crash into the refueling and they blow up and the, the plan fails and Jimmy Carter doesn't get reelected because of it. And you can kind of see a freak dust storm gives us Ronald Reagan and everything that follows after that. And so it's very difficult for me to give credence or too much credence to outcome, to freak accidents, to the happenstances of history. I'd rather not. I'd rather just look at it in almost a purist sense. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get it. Now that you put it that way, that is a very, very interesting perspective. I'm glad that you were able to bring it to print, so to speak, for everyone to uh, kind of enjoy and get some additional perspective on. Vince, let's talk about some of these plots in that case that we've been kind of hinting at so far. There are quite a few actually in the book and a few of them I had heard about in articles and that sort of thing, but a lot more detail was included in the book than I anticipated. And there were some that were just completely new to me as well. So I want to start with this Operation Capricious. It looks like it was kind of a foray into biological warfare during World War II. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Operation Capricious is not the only potential foray into chemical and biological warfare in World War II, but it's, to me, it's the most interesting. We had dabbled, we the Allies, the US and the British and others had dabbled with bio and chem warfare, not actually in practice, but in, in testing and in planning and plotting. One of the most famous instances is a plan to spread botulism using Chinese prostitutes to Japanese officers in the Pacific, which never happened. Of course, it didn't. We certainly would have heard about it had it happened. <laughs> but Capricious was, was a, a wonderful, in my opinion, plan that, that made a lot of sense in the kind of broader concept of you know, here's a way to bring the German army to its knees in North Africa. And, and the concept behind it was essentially OSS had realized that science and technology was going to help win the war. And Bill Donovan, who was ahead of the OSS, was a, a strong believer in the, the application of science and technology to war fighting. And so he brought on some of the best scientists in the country to help work at OSS to come up with the new technologies and the new practices of war that would help us win in the trenches and behind the enemy lines and all the different places that war is decided. And, and part of this was a, the application of biological and chemical warfare. North Africa was a particular problem for the Americans early in the war. For those that know kind of the foundation of American World War II history, it was our first real opportunity to fight on the ground against German forces, and we get our ass kicked. The Battle of Kasserine Pass is one of the ones we want to forget as a U.S. military because it was a waxing. The Germans under Rommel just completely decimate the American forces on the battlefield. And so it didn't look great for the first real kind of here we are, America is ready to win the war. You know, in World War I, that was great. We show up and we help them win. In World War II, we show up and get our butts kicked. And so a lot of people were searching for potential other solutions. And the OSS was always ready to provide some. And one of the ideas was, okay, how do we take the Germans out of North Africa? And, and the realization was that North Africa is full of goats, lots and lots of goats in North Africa. And these particular North African goats in places like Morocco tended to be a, a prolific poopers, for lack of a better phrase. And their manure attracted the North African fly. And it's not like the flies around here where they're just kind of pesky. North African flies were particularly everywhere. And they were not only all over the place, but they would go after humans. And not they didn't bite, but they would just get all over your eyes and your nose, your mouth, anywhere the mucous membrane was, because that was their ability to 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 be to eat. They wanted to kind of get your 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 fluids from you without biting you, right? They went to the places that were wet on your body and they just swarmed and it was just gross. It sucked, right? And mm -hmm. being there, they were, they were a problem to begin with. Now, the idea was, can we introduce an added element of horror for the German forces and douse these flies with a biological weapon? In this case, it was a biological weapon that would not kill the Germans. So we're not 
out to go and kill a bunch of Germans because when you kill Germans, you do two things. One is you make it pretty obvious that you've done something bad. Uh, a bunch of Germans just don't up and die in the middle of North Africa. And the idea was not to let anyone know that we were doing this because biological and chemical weapons were essentially taboo at this point. World War One, even Hitler was saying, I'm not going to use chemical weapons. It wasn't because he was being nice. It's because he didn't want retaliation. And everyone remembered how bad World War I was in chemical weapons. And so the, the Allies were like, let's not let anybody know we're doing this. So let's figure out a way to make it to where there are no clear-cut lines of, of evidence. It's plausible deniability at its mm. finest that there's biological weapons at use here. And if there was 100,000 dead Germans, that would be a big red warning sign saying that hey, something bad had happened here. But you have a bunch of sick Germans with particularly bad gastrointestinal diseases or flu-like symptoms. It could be, there's plenty of plausible deniability that you can say, well, this is just bad luck. It's North Africa. It's a dirty place. We are just experiencing a huge amount of bad luck all at once. And German forces are, are completely disabled. Number two, you don't want to kill everybody because dead soldiers are kind of easy to deal with. I know that sounds pretty terrible to say. But wounded or sick soldiers need medical care. They need attention. They need resources. You need to actually put things into keeping them alive and making sure they can work their way back to usefulness. And so it's much easier to just bury a dead soldier to ship them home. It's much more resource intensive to wound or to sicken a lot of German soldiers. And so this was the perfect plan. The issue was... How do we go about making sure there are enough flies and enough goat feces to make this plan work? And the brilliant solution by OSS was, let's not let nature be in charge of this. Let's actually manufacture a synthetic goat poop that we can lace with this bioweapon and attract flies to it so that it could go and, and deliver our payload to the German soldier. So the big development here that they actually do do is to create this, I didn't even realize that was a pun. Uh, that was, pun wasn't intended, but it worked pretty well. They actually pull off is to manufacture synthetic goat feces that was so pungent that documents say that it woke the German North African fly out of hibernation. Essentially, it's like a Cinnabon for flies, right? You walk by it and you can't help yourself. You get sucked. You got, I got to have this stuff. And they developed a bioweapon agent. They call it kind of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they called it. it. had all the different things that you do not want to happen to you. It would give you fevers. It would make your stomach go bad in both directions. It would just make you want to be dead without actually killing you. And so all the elements were there to allow for this operation to happen, right? They had everything that they needed, and then it doesn't. And Really, what, what it comes down to is there's a couple things that, that really ends this mm -hmm. operation. The first was that the Germans just decided to leave North Africa. Mainly, this is because of the ability of the Soviets to defend Stalingrad and to give the Germans just hell in Stalingrad, which is assumed by Hitler was going to be a quick victory. Of course, it turns into a months and months and months long siege, and the German North African forces were pulled out in order to help reinforce the German army at Stalingrad. The second thing is a little bit more arguable. There's not like a direct lineage from this, but the German army was, was having trouble in North Africa, not because of what the British and the American armies were doing, but because they were having a difficult time maintaining their supplies 
coming across the Mediterranean. We were very good. We, the Allies, were very good at hitting the ships, bringing the most essential supplies to Rommel's forces in North Africa. And that had nothing to do with luck. It had everything to do with us breaking the encipher system of the Germans, known as Enigma. You may have heard that story, which let us know exactly what supplies the German North African forces were short on and exactly what boats those supplies would be on as they crossed the Mediterranean. And then we attacked those and sank them. So for Hitler, it was an, almost an easy decision. Stalingrad needed reinforcements very quickly, and the German forces in North Africa were essentially about to run out of gas and bullets and everything else. And so everyone was pulled out of North Africa. So there's no need for this bio-attack anymore. Wow. That's amazing. So was the project, was it only shut down after the Germans pulled out? I mean, it was seen as feasible up until that point, then I take it? Yeah, I mean, it was seen as feasible even after that point. It was just unnecessary. So it was oh, over, yeah. overtaken by events, right? So OSS demonstrated that this could work. OSS demonstrated that this was something that could potentially have been used uh, to help defeat the Germans in North Africa. But once they were gone, uh, that's when the, the, the calculus changed. The rationale for this no longer existed. And no one was going to break that biological or chemical genie out of the bottle uh, because it would dramatically change the way the war was fought. Uh, sure. That was, everyone was kind of waiting for the other guy to do it. And when the other guy never did it, it kind of kind of stayed away. And, and really, weapons of mass destruction, you don't get any of those in World War II until the very, very end. And then it's only twice. They stay at, a, surprisingly, the most devastating war in human history, arguably kills 100 million people. All the sides, every one of them was afraid to use biological weapons or chemical weapons. They just hmm. were taboo. And that's one of the really interesting ironies of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Absolutely agree. I'm curious, Vince, do we know what the delivery system was going to be to get it close enough to the Germans? I mean, were they going to yes. airdrop this or something? Or? <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, that's one of the funny conversations that the, the, the scientists have is, how do you actually get this synthetic goat poop into theater? And the solution was to airdrop it. You mentioned it, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the problem, of course, and this was brought up. We don't have the name of the person that brought this up. I wish we did. Uh, some poor person in the back of the room who clearly, you know, their hand went up very shakily and, you know, it said, hey, uh, so how do we explain if we're trying to keep plausible deniability of this, right? Or how do we, if we're trying to make sure that this looks natural, how do we explain all the goat poop on all the roofs of all the buildings in North Africa? If we drop it from the air, it's not all going to land on the ground, right? It's going to land on the flat ceilings and roofs of some mm. of these houses. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of stopped and paused and said, you know what? You're right. That's a real problem. But if this works the way it's supposed to, the Germans are going to be too sick to even pay attention to, <laughs> to where the goat poop is. And so it was one of these, you know, like, we'll, we'll deal with that problem when we run into it. If we're hmm. ever going to use this, we're going to be so desperate that it, that's that's not going to matter as much. Uh, but it's a, wow. it's a legitimate question, right? I mean, how do you explain goat poop, goat poop on the roof? You know, you're not going to genetically engineer flying goats, so you really can't <laughs> explain that away. And I think the answer was, well, all right, we'll worry about that later. The Germans won't even be paying attention to the roofs. They're going to be in so much pain and suffering hmm. that that's not going to be an issue. Incredible stuff. Yeah, there was complete willingness to try almost anything. Is, is really amazing. And it certainly spurred a lot of creativity along the way, even if it created some problems as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the, you know, mother is the, 
the mother of invention is necessity. I mean, I think that the, mm-hmm. the this is a level beyond necessity, right? Desperation really brings out the ideas, and and some of them pan out wonderfully, some of them not so much. <laughs> but you you, re- you don't really know what direction you're going, and I know a lot of early prototypes for some of the most important technology we'll ever have failed miserably the first couple of times it was tested, and and so you don't know what direction that's going to go in at that point. You just kind of have to keep pushing and see what works and what doesn't. Sure. Sure. So Vince, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to the Cold War now and talk about um, this Operation Blue Peacock a little bit. I know it had to do with a a potential nuclear exchange uh, between NATO and the USSR. Can you tell us about how Blue Peacock was originally envisioned? Yeah, I love this story. It's so ridiculous. Um, So uh, if you look at the strategy of NATO in the 1950s and even into the 1960s a little bit, they're, they talked a lot of talk about conventional war in Europe, about you know developing tanks and fighter aircraft and artillery and infantry on the ground to fight the Soviets. But that, that was just talk. There was really no intention of having a World War I or World War II style battle over Europe. It just that wasn't in the plans. And the reason for that was the Red Army, which is absolutely massive. And not only the Red Army, but of course, you have all these Eastern Bloc militaries that would be now part of this broader Warsaw Pact massive force that would be moving west if World War III breaks out. And so the understanding, or at least the belief among most NATO planners, whether this is true or not, was that the forces fighting against the Soviets would get overrun very quickly unless the war went nuclear almost instantly. That the kind of the tripwire across the Fulda Gap in Germany into West Germany would be, we'd, we'd shoot a couple tank rounds at them and then we'd pull back and then the nukes would start flying. And so a lot of different nuclear weapons were developed for this particular reason. And certainly you had the big strategic ones, you know, the ones that were launching through ICBMs or dropping off bombs to take out cities. You have battlefield or tactical nuclear weapons, which are used to go after airfields or mass concentrations of troops. And then you had very specific nuclear weapons like ADMs. Uh, which stands for Atomic Demolition Mines. Essentially, this is a nuclear landmine that was used, developed by all the different sides in the Cold War, but developed most extensively by the Allies, by the Americans and the British. And the Blue Peacock was a British design, which was going to be used if World War III breaks out to effectively at least slow down, if not halt, a Soviet advance across Eastern and Western Europe. And the idea was to bury them in very strategic places, in some cases to destroy bridges, to destroy dams, so you flood areas, to destroy really important roadways, or to, to redirect forces, right? To use actual nuclear weapons to irradiate certain areas that make them less appealing to the Soviet army to cross through, to try to redirect their forces into places that are more advantageous for your defensive forces, like kind of push them into bottlenecks or push them into areas where your defense is set up much more strongly than, you know, it is other places. And so that was the concept behind ADMs to destroy, to redirect. But the concept went a bit farther in that you actually had to preposition these weapons. So they weren't like things that you put on submarines or things that you could drop in aircraft and keep way in the rear inside bunkers. These actually had to be put into the ground probably weeks before World War III breaks out. You don't have to keep them there all the time. 
But as tension ratcheted up, as it became pretty clear you're about to go to war, that's when you would deploy them and you would go and bury them throughout Eastern and Western Europe. You're not going to make a lot of friends doing that among the Danes <laughs> or the West Germans or the Belgians or anyone else. You're like, hey, uh, I thought you were going to defend our territory. No, we're going to blow the hell out of it. But that was the that was the strategy. Wow. It's, it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes of all of these nuclear deterrence strategists because, you know, we, it was kind of drilled into my head so much growing up that nuclear war is the end of planet Earth, of, of life as we know it and all that. But there were so many facets to these strategies and so many weapons that were built and, and dispersed all over the place. It really is amazing. But I know that there were some technical hurdles with these landmines as well, which is kind of what takes it into the the bizarre territory that we is the whole point of your book in the first place, right? Yeah. So Blue Peacock was the code name for the first British atomic landmine, which was designed very similarly to the first British atomic bomb, which came about in the early 1950s. So we're talking early 1950s technology. And the Blue Peacock was a big cylinder. Kind of think of it as the size of almost a box truck back end, right? So if you ever rented one of the big U-Hauls, you know, think of it as like that's kind of the box part of that, but a oh, cylinder, right? You know, or or I don't know why I'm think of the back of a cement mixer, right? So a, it's a big honking cylinder with the components of the weapon inside of it, and that would be that's what you would bury in, let's say, Denmark, with the idea that if the Soviets came running through, you could detonate it either remotely or through a timer. And it would blow a dam or blow a bridge or blow up a bunch of Soviet troops and, and it helps you win the war. The issue was, because you have to preposition these, you're going to be leaving these alone for, let's say, a couple weeks at a time. Now, in the summer, this doesn't matter because, you know, the electronic components do okay when it comes to warm weather. And it's not going to be that hot under the ground anyway, right? So you're probably talking about room temperature there. Pretty comfortable. But in the wintertime, if you've ever been to Northern Europe or Northeastern Europe, like Poland or Denmark or Northern Germany in the wintertime, it gets cold. It gets really, really cold. So cold that the British designers and engineers were worried that the electronic components would freeze and not work. So you have a bunch of useless nuclear landmines laid out all over the kind of front lines between the Soviets and NATO that wouldn't go off when we needed them to. And, and if you're going to create your grand strategy based on knocking out this bridge or this dam or irradiating this area, and then those don't work, then your grand strategy will collapse. And that, that's really problematic when you're talking about the beginnings of World War III. So they had to find a way to warm, or at least to maintain some of the heat inside these nuclear landmines. And there are a lot of different ideas thrown around. Part of you know, fiberglass insulation and pillows and insulation, all these different things actually made a ton of sense, but that's not the one they go with. So the British decide, forget the ones that kind of make sense and let's go with live chickens. And you didn't hear me wrong. <laughs> live chickens is the solution. Like I said, this is a pretty large cylinder and there's components of the weapon inside, but there's a lot of room kind of, you know, room around where the weapon system is. You know, there's empty space inside here. Plenty of empty space for a couple of chickens. And so the concept, the solution was you would throw a couple of chickens inside Blue Peacock once you deployed it, throw a week or two worth of chicken feed in there, seal it up, and then it's ready to rock. Now, why chickens? Why is this the solution? Well, 
chickens are what are known as homeothermic. And this is the sounds complicated. Anyone hate science? Don't worry. We're homeothermic too, right? So are most mammals. Uh, a lot of animals are homeothermic. Basically means we dissipate heat into the environment around us, right? We do it through sweating, right? You, you go for a, a run, other people, not me, go for a run on a, <laughs> on a cold day. And you, you can almost see heat coming off our bodies, right? We sweat and we steam and all that stuff. Well, that, that's what homeothermism is all about. We ha don't really have a big range of the ability to do that. I mean, when our humans' bodies get down below 97, 96 degrees, you start getting hypothermia, right? People can die if their body temperature gets too low. And if our body temperature gets too high, then we can die also if you have a fever that's in the 105, 106 range. Well, chickens, and I had to, trust me, I had to look all this up. This is not something my PhD program taught me is, is chicken <laughs> biology. Chicken's normal body heat is between 105 and 107 degrees. So if they're in a very cold environment, let's say, you know, the Danish countryside in February, and the external temperature is negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit, that is a dramatic difference between their 105 degrees and that 10. So their bodies are going to naturally give off heat. The great thing about chickens is actually they can drop over 30 degrees. Their, their body temperatures can drop to about 73 degrees before they drop dead. So they've got a 30 degree wiggle room on releasing heat into the environment around them before they croak, which means they're natural. They're basically little mini heaters that can don't need an electricity. They, they're not going to break down. You just throw some food in there and you're good to go for a couple of weeks. And that was the solution. That was what blue peacock was. Incredible. Incredible <laughs> stuff. So simple. It's staring you right in the face. And I would never in a million years have thought of that myself. Well, it's the cheapest option, right? You can develop all these like polymer fiberglass thermal insulation things, or you grab a couple of chickens and toss them in there <laughs> with some feed and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, it's sometimes the simplest solutions are the most effective. Before we go on, I want to let you all know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter-surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. The newsletter subscription is normally $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSPYCRAFT, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. Yeah, amazing. I can see some, some very clear advantages to this strategy, but I'm trying to put myself in the place of the person who's really writing this up as a, like a formal proposal, let alone the person who kind of suggested it, you know, in the bullpen or in the lab to begin with. And I'm trying to see how they think it's going to be taken. And, and clearly in the end, it didn't go forward, like you mentioned, but 
it's well, worth I, pursuing, but it's kind of hard to imagine pitching it to someone who's not involved. What's interesting, like all of these is, you know, these are, I didn't choose ones that were canceled because they were bad ideas. Not a single idea, you know, mission or, or technology or operation in this book was canceled because somebody said, no, 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 we're not going to do this. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Every one of them was canceled because they were overtaken by events, because new technology was designed, because the need wasn't there anymore. That, that was the reason. In this case, Blue Peacock and the live chicken concept wasn't canceled, but somebody said, chickens, what the hell are you talking about? It was canceled because they developed better nuclear weapons with, with better <laughs> electronic systems that didn't need necessarily to have the same kind of heating that others did. And so the plan, the mission itself was scrapped because of new technology. You know, one of the actually disadvantages of the particular design of weapon that was going to be used inside Blue, Cock is, Blue Peacock is that it was super dirty. It was a really dirty, inefficient weapon. So when mm. nuclear... The, the really short primer on this is that most modern nuclear weapons use a lot of the nuclear material to actually make the big boom. That's why the big booms are so effective and actually why they're pretty clean comparatively. Nuclear weapons or atomic weapons of the 40s and 50s were super dirty because they were so inefficient. Most of the nuclear material wasn't turned into energy. Most of the nuclear material just was dissipated in the blast. And so the blue peacock system was replaced not only because it needed to be warmed by, you know, chickens, but because it was super dirty, it was inefficient. You could actually get a smaller weapon that actually yielded a much higher boom for less nuclear material that, again, didn't need to be warmed in such the same way that this one did. Hmm. Really incredible stuff, Vince, honestly. It's amazing. I'm really glad that you found this and were able to get it out there into the public eye once again. Yeah, no, I mean, me too. I mean, I... The British released, it was only like 2014, so it's not even been a decade since the British actually declassified this operation. And bits and pieces have come out since. So it was declassified, that the, this thing existed, and then some little bits and pieces have come out since then. So this is not something that we've known about for, for a long time, actually less than I a see. decade. I see. And actually, I actually, no, it was April 1st, 2014, because it was released on April Fool's Day. Not on purpose. It was just one of the, it just so happened. That was the day they released this. And so it's, it's hard not to forget that date. Yeah, clearly. I can see why people wouldn't take it seriously initially. Yeah, so, they, had to, they had to tell people like, yeah, we don't make jokes. This is for <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So Vince, on the subject of cold weather already, I wanted to turn to uh, Operation Washtub in Alaska. And that's actually something that I've covered a little bit on um, my Instagram page in the past. I found it very, very interesting, although I didn't talk about the specific individuals that were named in your book. Uh, but a lot of people, of course, that listen have not necessarily seen this from me before. So can you talk about Operation Washtub a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Operation Washtub, one of the cool things about that is there are tens of thousands of documents that have been released recently on this operation. So if you really want to get into the weeds on this, you can. But basically, this was a, a stay-behind program. And essentially, a stay-behind program is during an invasion, when you assume you're going to lose, and there are times when you know that, right? There are times when you're like, look, you know, if someone, if X country invades Y territory, we're not going to hold Y territory. Our, our strategy is to withdraw from Y territory. And, and, and part of that is because you just, it's not worth fighting over. And in this case, this is a stay-behind program in Alaska. And the idea was if, if World War III breaks out and the Soviets decide to invade, 
which is not likely, but let's say they do, it'll be Alaska, right? There's, that's the only place they can invade. They're not crossing the Pacific or the Atlantic. They don't have the amphibious capabilities of doing that. So they're going to come across the very easy, you know, Bering Strait route through Alaska. Mm-hmm. And if they do, we're not going to put 10 divisions up there to fight the Soviets. That's not worth it. It's Alaska. We're, they're going to take it. But we can make their lives a living hell once they do. And so we're going to develop a program where we're going to create, again, what's called stay-behinds. And it's exactly what it sounds like. These are people who will, when the invasion takes place, will stay behind. They will not be withdrawn. And they'll kind of either melt into the countryside or they'll kind of melt into the civilian population and hunker down and wait. Wait for an opportune time to do bad things to the Soviet occupying forces. In some cases, this is just intelligence gathering, right? This is having great people, trained people who can pass along an intelligence about the Soviet forces and, and what they're doing and how they're reinforcing themselves, all, all those things, and pass those along to the American military. In some cases, this would include things like sabotage or paramilitary action or rescuing down pilots or even assassinations. All the things you think of when it comes to special operations forces. I can think of the OSS in World War II or the resistance. That, those are stay behinds. That would be the idea of training these people during peacetime to be prepared in case of war. And so WASHTUB was a joint program between the FBI for a little while and the U.S. Air Force to create this program and to recruit the people for it in case of World War III. Hmm. I've, I've definitely heard of the stay behind before. I've talked about it actually with a a little bit about the ones in, in Germany, which is yep. kind of where you expect, you know, and I have some upcoming stuff planned as well. But it was a very big shock to me to learn that there were stay behind forces in the in U.S. territory essentially. And and not only that, but some of the recruits, those guys were not the people I was expecting to be recruited, although it makes perfect sense now that I think about it. So who was the FBI and the OSI looking for specifically for these teams? Well, they they, they recruited 89 people that we know of. Uh, some of the, again, there's tens of thousands of documents, but they're still heavily redacted for whatever reason still today. So there are 89 people who were selected and they would they would act as a bit of a, of a cadre force to where they would recruit people under them once war broke out. So essentially had an expert team that would kind of create cells of, of stay-behinds and spies and saboteurs during World War III. And, and so a lot of these people they're looking for are rugged, you know, you know, self-reliant people who have area knowledge, people who had their own cabins in the woods and their own survival equipment. Today, this would be the kind of the prepper, right? We're going mm-hmm. to think of the prepper survivalist, right? Most interestingly, the number one trait they were looking for was white. They did not want natives, which is the, in, again, in hindsight, is absolutely idiotic. If you want the people who know the area the best and who have been self-reliant for hundreds of years in Alaska, it's the native population. But this is the 1940s and 50s we're talking about. This is the FBI we're talking about. So just the just blatant racism in this program was we do not want natives because of what they said. They're always drunk and they're not reliable and they can't be trained. So it's oh, just man. like racist, racist, racist. Mm-hmm. So it, it's very much like when the, the space program wants the best and the brightest pilots, but they don't want Chuck Yeager, right? It's like, you don't want the best guy. It's like, well, you know, he drinks too much and he's, he didn't go to college. In this case, it was, well, you know, we're racist idiots. So we're not going to take the smartest, most self-reliant, most rugged 
survivalists who know the area better than anyone because they're like 30th generation. Mm-hmm. No, we're going to take Bob who just moved up from Idaho and only been here for 10 years, but you know, he's white and he's less likely to quote unquote be drunk all the time. But they found people. They found people who, if you read their bios, which I include in the book, it's not a bad group. It's just a limited group because they don't pick any natives. They were scheduled to receive some extensive training, training that would, you know, rival those of any kind of 1940s or 50s era Navy SEAL or special operations guys, or certainly training that you would receive as a CIA paramilitary officer, training in things like sabotage and assassination and communications and codes and ciphers and all the things you would need to be a stay behind. There's not a lot within the documents to tell us how many or if any actually received that training. Um, but they were certainly scheduled to receive that training. And they would have been equipped with basically what you'd think of as an OSS officer in World War II in Europe, right? They had grenades, they would have weapons caches, they would have all sorts of spy technology like radios and encryption systems and all these other things. So they could fight their own mini war. They could red dawn Alaska during the invasion of the 1950s. Man, oh man, incredible stuff. Do you know if that equipment was actually issued out or was it like a plan that if hostilities look like they're looming on the horizon, then we'll start, you know, distributing explosives and and encrypted radios and that sort of thing? That's a wonderful question because there's no great answer to that. There's hints that some of the caches had been actually put out there. There's hints that they haven't. Also, there's hints that if the caches had been put out there, they'd been recovered. There's also hints that they hadn't been. So maybe there's... (laughs) Maybe there's a little treasure hunt for really antiquated, you know, 1940s era survival kits with some, you know, great little spy radios and stuff in there and then, you know, buried under like 20 feet of snow in the Yukon area of Alaska that someone might stumble onto one day. But I'm not sure that there's enough information to go on like a full fledged, let's track this thing down. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Look. Anyone out there who wants to go read 40,000 pages of documents, maybe they'll find a hint to it that I didn't, but that's not what I was looking for at the time. So maybe it's there. I just didn't see it. I see. I see. One of the other things that really struck me about this whole story, if I recall correctly, the average age of the selectees was like 50, which means that a lot of them were older than 50 years old. And I'm, I'm sure that they were a bunch of, you know, tough, older guys, but I would rarely, I would not expect you know, those to be typical recruits for any sort of paramilitary program is a guy who's 50, 55, 60 years old. But that was the yeah, case. Well, yeah, and it doesn't really provide you a lot of longevity in your program, right? You're going to eventually. <laughs> yeah, you know, very true. One, one of the reasons to recruit an 18 year old is that you have them for 30 years, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is, you know, you're going to have to turn this program over pretty quickly if you hope for it to continue on. But, you know, you want the people who have the experience. You're not going to find that in a younger person, probably. And, and mm-hmm. so you do have. So let me put a caveat on this. The people, the people we know about the average age is that there are a lot of personnel records that are still redacted. So mm-hmm. maybe the ones that are still redacted are, are younger and we're still around much longer doing other things. And that's why they're still re- redacted. So I, this is one of those ones where it's like, you know what, we know what we know. We can make assumptions and conclusions based on what we know, but it's always take it with a grain of salt because there's a lot that's still out there that we don't know about. Sure, sure. 
that's already got me wondering, like you said, just, you know, it's purely speculation, but, you know, somebody who finds their way into a position where they're working with the FBI and OSI, they're a young guy with a lot of potential, and maybe they go on to something else after this program ends, you know, since they've already got training and they've already a trustworthy individual and self-reliant and that sort of thing. That's pretty interesting speculation there, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit upon it, right? I mean, these are people who's we're, we're trying to protect their identity because mm-hmm. they're either they're still undercover or people they recruit. I mean, you don't protecting identity. Mean, your listeners probably know this better than anyone because you talk about this. But the idea of protecting the identity of a covert operative is not necessarily just to make sure they're safe; it's to make sure everyone they've ever talked to is right. safe as well, right? So even if you have somebody who retired <clears throat> in 1965 from CIA, let's say. You need to keep that person's identity secret because the people that they recruited or the people that they worked with may still be in positions of power today. And so that's why, you know, people are like, why is this still classified? Well, because there's a reason for it. Because there are countries that don't just punish the person who's a spy, but punish their kids and grandkids and whole families and dogs yep. and everybody else. And, and so, you know, things may never be declassified, not because we're trying to be sneaky about it. It's because we're trying to protect those that have worked for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Vince, did Washtub also eventually just kind of get overtaken by world events like some of the other stuff you talked about? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there are two things that really doom this program, which I'd love to make a movie about this. If you're interested, let me know. Because it's like Northern Exposure meets Red Dawn, if you remember that show, Northern Exposure, mm-hmm. or Mystery Alaska, which is a great hockey movie. One of them was the realization by the late 1950s that the Soviets just didn't have the capability of pulling something off like this. They just weren't invading anytime soon. Even going across the Bering Straits was going to be too difficult to put major forces into play for the Soviet Union, especially with how much trouble they were having in Europe, right? So it was not something that we saw as a possibility. The bigger reason is because, like we just talked about, World War III was not going to be fought by saboteurs in the outback in the wilderness. You know, It was going to be fought by nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And by the late 50s, early 60s, the realization was that this was going to be a different kind of war. And we should not be putting our resources into training up, you know, rugged mountain men in Alaska. We put our resources into nuclear weapons. And so like many other programs during the Cold War, it was canceled because that's just not the way this next war was going to be fought. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Washtub was one of the ones, Vince, that I had heard about prior to the book, although you shed a lot of new light on it for me. But this uh, Project SEAL that you also mentioned was totally new to me. I know that's a little bit farther back in the past. So can we rewind the clock a little bit to Project SEAL? Yeah, so Project SEAL was a World War II concept that actually, the idea for it goes all the way back to the 1930s. There was a U.S. Navy pilot in the 1930s who was working on some surveys of of Pacific Islands prior to World War II. So this is even before the war begins. And a lot of the survey was being done using small explosives on the coral reefs, some of these areas out in the Pacific. And he noticed that every time an explosive went off underwater, that it created a little bit of a wave, right? I mean, and, you know, this is kind of common physics stuff, right? You, even if you take our hands out of the water and jerk them up real fast, we'll make it splash on the surface. Most of your listeners have probably seen the video of the underwater nuclear tests in the 1950s where you get a huge plume of water that pops up. Well, he saw this and said, you know what? If small explosions are making small waves, maybe big explosions will make really big waves. 
And our potential enemies in World War II, which we already kind of knew was going to be Japan, they're spread out across all these islands in the Pacific, and their entire main country is an island. So what if we could find ways to weaponize nature? What if we could find ways to create an artificial tsunami, which is the kind of central focus of Project SEAL? Hmm. Artificial tsunami. So tremendous ramifications for that, honestly. But how long, how far along did this planning get? I mean, like you said, a lot of this was not canceled because it was just too outlandish. No, I mean, so they did a lot of small scale testing. Lots of it. I mean, talking dozens and dozens of small scale tests. And so they brought a lot of very smart people together to work on this. And and they actually sold this idea to Admiral Halsey. And, you know, if you know the name, well, Halsey, he's kind of, you know, for the Pacific War, he's about as important as it gets. And he's like, absolutely. If you can pull this off, let's do this. So they got a lot of money to do this. They, they Around New Zealand was where all this testing took place. And they got really positive results from the experiments. And they, they not just from setting off one explosive, but they eventually were able to work their way to understanding that if you set off explosives in a sequence, in a series that got bigger each time, you could build up that energy inside the, the ocean, inside the water, <coughs> to create bigger and bigger waves. And the hope, of course, in the end, was that you could create a wave big enough that you could set this stuff off right before you invaded an island, right? So think, imagine the battle at Iwo Jima, where before the Marines landed and tried to take Mount Suribachi, you set off an, a tsunami that washed over the island and, and didn't kill all the Japanese forces, but made their, made their lives much more difficult. And then the Marines land on the island. That would, that would give you a huge advantage. Oh, yeah. My gosh, flooding out all of their tunnels totally unexpectedly, all of that, it would have just ruined their day, that's for sure, and saved a lot of American lives in the process. Yeah, and then, of course, when you finally think about what was planned, which was the eventual invasion of the Japanese main island, if you can hit that with tsunami after tsunami before the invasion takes place, maybe it's a much easier invasion. Mm-hmm. And that was the idea behind this. It wasn't, you know, this is how we're going to win the war thing. It was a, this could really help out. And so they had some positive results from experiments, but they're still at very, very small scale. Okay. So do you happen to know, like, were they able to get up to, I don't know, like creating a six foot tall wave or a series of six foot tall waves, something like that? Or, I mean, what was the ultimate goal, like a 50 foot wave? Yeah, the ultimate goal was to create, you know, big, huge, like 50, 60 foot tidal waves that you could just wash anyone off the beach, beach and then anyone even behind it as well. And this was not something they got anywhere near. Right, they didn't get any. They were they were creating small waves, but they were creating waves. But the idea was, it's science, which means you do it in a laboratory, you do it at a small scale, but then you scale up, right? So they weren't using massive explosives; they were using relatively small explosives. And so the concept was, maybe one day we'll have explosives big enough to do this and actually make it work. The problem was exactly that: the only explosives that could potentially make this work were actually being developed at the same time. <laughs> In another program, but this one taking place at, in in, North, in New Mexico, and that's really what causes this program to end is the realization that there wasn't going to have to be an invasion of the Japanese made islands. There was a project that was going to end the war, and it didn't need some actual extra testing scaling up. It was going to blow up Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the war was going to end. Another issue actually was that that Halsey was promoted. Halsey was their great champion. He was the one saying, give them any money that they need. This is going to help us win the war. 
But then he basically gets promoted to take over the entire Pacific naval forces for the big end push of the war, and they lose their top cover. They, they kind of lose the guy who had been their champion. And then, you know, eventually gets to the point where it's like, why would we spend the money to do massive scale testing on this stuff when we've got the atomic bomb? And so it's overtaken by events. We, we don't know from testing alone whether or not it would work. We have a pretty good idea that it wouldn't just because of science, but we never saw it not work in effect. And it, I say because of science, they, they've done calculations based on the tsunami that hit Japan in the 20 teens. Mm-hmm. If everyone, the one that, you know, caused the Fukushima problem, it had the equivalent energy of about 9.3 million megatons, not oh 9 point, not 9.3 megatons, 9.3 million megatons was the amount of energy that was behind that tsunami. So that gives you an idea of how much you'd be like, oh, nuclear weapons would do it. Well, no, that's if we have millions of them, yeah. which we never did, right? And mm-hmm. that's if you use them exactly the way you needed to to create that kind of stuff. It's much easier just to drop all your nuclear weapons on the country you're attacking <laughs> instead of just creating some big tidal wave tsunami. But that doesn't that didn't stop people like Vladimir Putin. If you remember, before Putin you know, got very busy losing wars, he was making a bunch of threats. Some of the more advanced weapon systems that he was claiming they had developed in the, in the 20 teens included this submarine drone that had a, you know, a Tsar Bomba sized nuclear weapon on it that could create a tsunami. Hmm. And everyone was like, oh my God. And it's like, just relax, just <laughs> relax. That's not going to create a tsunami. We actually, we know why, because we tested this and it doesn't work. So Project Seal and the failure, the, the inability of Project Seal to, to to be successful. I don't want to say the failure because we never got there, but the likely failure of Project Seal made a lot of scientists and you know go shut up, Putin. You're just you're just saying stuff that's nonsense. No one's creating a tsunami anytime soon. Yeah, amazing that project still had legs, or that that concept still had legs after so many years. Well, I mean, it, it was a nice little boogeyman, right? It was a thing yeah, you know, for yeah. Putin to be able to say, you know, Putin was exaggerating about a lot of things with <laughs> this military, <laughs> right. as we now know. Yep. Yep. Understood completely. So Vince, I kind of saved the best for last because this honestly is my personal favorite project of all. Is it Project uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk? I think it, it was. was. It depends on who you ask. Actually, the spelling of it, it also depends on who you ask. It, it's spelled several different ways uh, in the documents. Part of it was that the guy who came up with it, Jeffrey Pike, spelled it one way. The Bible spells it a different way. We're not sure whether or not Pike just misspelled it. <laughs> and so it kind of became the what it is. But we, we some say, I, I call it Habakkuk. I, I have always, I've actually, some British people have called it something different, but I've heard some call it Habakkuk also. It's a British program. I defer to them. But even in deferring to them, they don't agree. So we're, we're kind of at an impasse here. But this, yes, this is a wonderful program story that has been tested now a couple of times. Even Mythbusters took a crack at this you know, at a very, very, very small scale. But if you talk about problem solving, which this book really is, right? This book is every single chapter starts with a problem. Here's their solution. Could be a simple one, but why do simple when you can do whatever the hell they're going to try to do because it's much more fun and here's how it ends. The problem that Project Habakkuk is trying to solve is like the problem of the British war when it comes to World War II is how do we keep our country in the fight? Right? How do how do we we are an island nation? 
our allies are across the ocean. How do we stay in this fight? And, you know, they try to solve it and because it's, it's tricky, right? The problem is that there's submarines that are sinking ships coming across the Atlantic. The issue is we do have aircraft carriers, but aircraft carriers of the 1940s vintage weren't like the super carriers of today. The naval aircraft that landed on them were light because they had to be, were lightly armed because they couldn't weigh too much, had very, very short range because you couldn't put a lot of fuel on them. So when they were used against submarines, they were fine, right? You know, a submarine can't do much against a, a carrier-based aircraft. It's a pretty decent fight. But a lot of the strategy was to use aircraft carrier-based aircraft against land targets. Like, you know, sail them over there and use them to support the troops landing on Normandy or North Africa and other places. Then they're going up against land-based aircraft. And when they go up against land-based aircraft, naval-based aircraft get their ass kicked because hmm. they're too lightly armored, they're too lightly gunned, they're, they, they're, their range is garbage compared to land-based aircrafts. They just don't stand a chance. So the solution has to be figure out a way to put better aircraft on aircraft carriers. Now, that's number one. Number two, you're building these aircraft carriers that are getting sank by a $10,000 torpedo from a submarine. Right, you're spending millions and tens of millions of dollars building this ship, and its vulnerability is pretty obvious. Right, you can sneak up on it, you can pepper it with with torpedoes, or you can drop a bomb straight down through the deck like we do at Midway, and it's at the bottom of the ocean. So, how do we protect an aircraft carrier against attack from submarines or from air forces, and how do we make it to where it's big enough to actually land better aircraft on it that aren't going to get their ass kicked once you get to a dogfight against a land-based aircraft. The issue, of course, is that would be a massive aircraft carrier that just does not have the ability to move very well because engines aren't nuclear-powered at this point, and it would take a ton of steel and a ton of resources, all sorts of things that could go to fighting the war in other places. So there was a very unique solution set for this that was suggested by a man named Jeffrey Pike to use, instead of steel, to use ice as our material for our aircraft carrier. And not just for the deck, for the whole damn ship. Build our aircraft carrier out of an iceberg. Incredible. Incredible stuff. I can I can see the initial promise of it based on what you all, you said so far, but it's such a out of left field kind of potential solution to that. So, but there were some advantages, like you said. So what exactly made ice viable as an aircraft carrier platform? Well, it doesn't sink, right? I mean, just think of, think of your ice cold drinks, right? What does the ice do? It floats, right? So buoyancy is guaranteed. You can pepper it full of torpedoes and it's not going to sink. Right? You're not, you're not making holes that are going to fill with water. It's not an empty cavity. Ice is also not steel, Right. So you don't actually have to make it. You just the way you make ice is freeze water. It's not like a, you have to need factories to build your ice for you. And that provides you with the potential solution for this because you have a potentially unsinkable ship that can be big enough that you can land major aircraft on it. Now, this went all the way up to Churchill. Right. So the top of the British command, both military and civilians, love this idea. And Churchill originally was like, why don't you just get a natural iceberg and kind of carve it out so we don't have to make it from scratch. They wouldn't, they checked that out. It just wouldn't work, right? Most natural icebergs are too small. 
Very few of them have flat surfaces on top of them. And very few of them are, are shaped in such a way that they're perfectly buoyant. It would be rare to find a aircraft carrier shaped iceberg in nature. <laughs> right. And so a lot of them will flip, right? You hit them with a torpedo or a bomb and they flip over. And that's a problem if you've got a bunch of planes on top of it. So you've got to build it. You actually have to create this thing. And fortunately, there was a, a development that actually takes place here in the United States. Two Brooklyn scientists, engineers, mix wood pulp. So basically, think of like old newspapers and, and the kind of wet down. They kind of get all pulpy and gross, almost mm-hmm. almost like paper mache, but not quite. You take ice and you, you mix in about 15% wood pulp into the freezing water. And it creates this, this material they called pikecrete after Jeffrey Pike. And pikecrete not only was exponentially stronger than ice by itself, but it was also malleable, which means you could actually shape it into all sorts of different things. Like they tested this, you could hit it with a hammer and it didn't make a dent. You actually could shoot at it and didn't make a dent. Actually, it bounced, the bullet bounced off and almost killed the chief of naval operations when they shot at it, right? So it, it was wonderful invention that made it to where, okay, this might actually work. This might be something that we can actually make happen. And so they decided to do, let's do some small-scale testing. Let's keep this secret. And so they do small-scale testing in Canada. You know, if you're going to go to people that know how ice works, you talk to the Canadians, right? So they they go out to several lakes in Canada, and they build small-scale versions of this that actually work, right? They work really, really well in a small scale, but not at a big scale. And that was the issue. They started doing math, and the math did not give them the answers that they wanted. To make an aircraft carrier that would be effective for all the different things they needed to be effective for, meaning impervious to, to torpedo fire or bombs, heavy enough to land big aircraft on and still actually be able to move across the ocean, the ice, the walls of the actual ship would have to be 35 feet thick. Oh, man. Which, if you want a comparison, a World War II battleship, like the USS Arizona, only had 12.1 inch thick armor on the side of it. So 35 feet versus a World War II battleship was 12.1 inches. So this is a massive, massive amount of resources they have to put into this. Mm -hmm. And they did the math, the British, it would consume more resources than building an entire fleet of conventional aircraft carriers. Oh, wow. So the idea made tons of sense. It just got to the point where it just it, you could not build it at that point in the war. And then it became an issue of whether or not we even needed it anymore. It's somewhat overtaken by events. What I mean by that is you now have established beachheads in North Africa. You've established beachheads in Southern Italy by 1944. By late 1944, you established a beachhead in France. And by late 1944, if you look at the Pacific side, you've established several islands very close to the Japanese mainland. You've also now, because of aircraft technology, have created planes that are still relatively light and can land on aircraft carriers, but have much better armor, much better armament, and longer capabilities when it comes to range. So a lot of the reasons that you wanted to build this thing are not quite as important anymore. And the final reason that you don't necessarily need to build this is because we not only break the three-rotor enigma, 
But Allies break the four-rotor submarine enigma, which was introduced to her terror at one point. Because for, for almost a year, we couldn't read the four-rotor uh, German submarine enigma, but we broke it eventually. Hmm. And by breaking it, we could read all their messages. So we knew where all the submarines were. And that meant we weren't all that worried about them anymore. And by the end of the war, we could just kill them all, which we end up basically doing. Uh, about 75% of German submariners end up at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, uh, the, the casualty rate is, is ex extraordinary if you think about, you know, a, a unit getting decimated by definition is losing 10% of its fighting force. That's 10% as decimation. The German submarine force lost 75% of its sailors during the war. And that's because we, we knew where they were. We knew what they were doing. We knew where they were going because we were reading their mail. Mm -hmm. And so all the things that you were going to build this aircraft carrier for kind of go away. And so that combined with the fact that it was going to cost as much as building an entire Navy meant that this great idea kind of just went away on its own. What's fun, mm -hmm. though, and I love, I love the coda to this. They built this small-scale model of it in a Canadian lake. And by small-scale, it was like the size of a pretty decent yacht, right? So it wasn't super small. It took it two years to melt. Wow, two years. Two years to melt. Just, you know, even, you know, it doesn't get all that warm in the summer in Canada, but it's still the summer, right? It's still above mm -hmm. freezing. And it just, just sat there and just took forever and it was Incredible. so so you look at it and go man this stuff's great this could have worked but it, it events overcame it to where you didn't need it anymore and the resources just didn't make any sense hmm. amazing stuff do you happen to know if, if that pikerete i mean it has these incredible properties does it have any other application or was it used for anything at all after it was developed not really i mean when you start talking about you know more modern ceramics and plastics and stuff, the pikerete, you really don't need it for a whole yeah, lot. Yeah. It was just a, a really fun and inventive way of, of hardening ice. Again, I haven't heard a lot about pikerete being used in any kind of manufacturing process. After that, it would have been totally civilian. So it's not something that the military would have used. Right, um, right. Maybe somebody knows better than me if some company, obscure company, you know, mix pikerete in like they're building concrete or something. But to me, it was not something that made any sense to use later on. Okay. Yeah. Understandable. Certainly. Some fascinating stories here. Absolutely. Vince, it's incredible stuff. And for the listener, we have not even covered half of the stories. I don't think from the book today. So I, I really encourage you to get out there and read Nuking the Moon by Vince Houghton. If you get the chance, it's a really, really interesting book and it's going to be very eye-opening for you. Vince, are you working on another book right now? Or are you totally focused on running the museum at the moment? No, I, I'm, I'm working on a book and I've got a book coming out. So I, I, I oh, every. Every time I finish one, I'm like, that's it. I'm done. And then, <laughs> no, about two weeks later, I'm like, what a great idea. Uh, I've got a book coming out in April. I wrote it with my a childhood friend of mine, a buddy that I've had since I was little kids. We both grew up in Miami, Florida. Uh, actually, if you've read Nuke in the Moon, you know that because there's references to Miami all over the place. But we, we both grew up in Miami, and we, now we're both in government positions that have kind of an intelligence bent or a national security bent to them. And so we kind of applied that knowledge and that experience to looking at the last, let's call it 50 years, 60 years of the history of Miami to argue that other than Washington, D.C., Miami is the most important American Cold War city. And with Washington, Moscow, Berlin, Beijing, Miami, Florida, of all places, should be considered a top tier Cold War city for importance. 
no one's ever argued that before because everyone's, you know, Miami, why the hell would you think about Miami? Well, we argue that it matters. And the secondary argument, and this is kind of a circular argument, is we argue that you don't get the Miami you have today, kind of the glitz and the glamour and the, the you know, first world city without the CIA and without the Cold War and without the fight against the communists. That, that hmm. fueled and funded the development of a city. And you can't say that about any other American city. I mean, you can say that about some towns, like Los Alamos wouldn't exist if mm-hmm. it wasn't for the government, right? But a major American city would not exist the way that it does today without spies and without, you know, the government. The original title of this book, it's called Covert City. The original title was The City Built by Spies. And that gives you a little bit of an idea about oh, what yeah. we're trying to argue. You always The titles always get changed by editors and everybody else. But like Covert City is catchier. I'm like, oh, okay. But, you know, you get, it's fine. It'll sell that way because it's, it's more of a, you know, alliterative title. But if you want to know what we're, we're writing about, The City Built by Spies is, is really kind of encapsulates everything. Fantastic. And I, I'm looking and forward I to that. And I can't talk about the book I'm working on right now. Because it's, ah, it's, yeah. it's fun. It's a little secrety. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. I, I ask most of my guests who are writers, I ask them what they're working on now. And it's about half the time they refuse to talk about it, which I understand completely. But uh, it's always something interesting in the end when it does come out. So I'm excited about that. And I love the idea of re- learning more about Miami. I've been there a few times. I've been into the old JM Wave Station that is a museum yep. now as well, which is they have a small display about it, but it was good to see it in person as well and went to Tamiami Airport to the 2506 exhibit that was there. I have not been inside either of the two Bay of Pigs museums yet though because they were both closed the last time that I was in Miami but I'm excited to go there as well. The the history there is insane. It's not just because of Castro. One of the things we argue also just the last thing I'll say is you know in 1989, 1990, 1991, whatever you want to argue, the Cold War ended everywhere but Miami. It's still, the Cold War is still being fought there today, right? I mean, oh. you know, there, there. It's just it's it. Everywhere else got a chance to kind of go off and say, "Oh, the Cold War's over. Here's the peace dividend." But it never stopped there. You know, Castro and Castroism is is continued on, and so the Cold War in Miami hasn't stopped. And I think that to me makes it just a really interesting city. That's why this book was able to bring us up all the way to today. I mean, we could even add a chapter of the stuff that's happened since we turned the book into the publisher. Oh. Of, wow. Just random crap that demonstrates how stupid the city is in all the most wonderful <laughs> and all the most wonderful ways. Oh, very cool. Okay, I'm really excited about that one. I'll definitely be picking it up in April when it comes out. Appreciate Fantastic. That. So besides coming to the museum, Vince, is there anywhere why, where my uh, listeners can connect with you? Do you have like social media profiles or website, anything like that? Yeah. So I mean, I, I'm I can't be super active because I work for NSA on social media, but I mm-hmm. I am on I still call it Twitter, and I refuse to not call it Twitter at Intel Historian. I-N-T-E-L historian on Twitter is my, my Twitter feed. That's that's the place I'm most often there. That's where you can you can link, lock me down. But you can obviously Google me too because the first like eight pages of Vince Houghton NSA or Vince Houghton spy stuff is me. And you can find different ways like LinkedIn and other places to, to find me. Okay, awesome. Well, fantastic. I, I'm already following you on Twitter as well. I have a small account, but I don't really use it that much on Twitter. I'm much bigger on Instagram normally. But yeah, you post some really interesting stuff there. I did see a little blurb about Covert City recently. So I encourage everybody with a Twitter account or X account to uh, find Vince there as well. Well, thanks a lot, Vince. It's been a very, very interesting conversation. I really pre- appreciate you talking to me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Take care. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, Look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com.
Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.